Hello, it's uh, Humphrey Gingold here. People call me Humpty. And uh, I'm currently uh, in lockdown in my Airbnb in Karachi. Uh, I'm not here by myself. I'm socially distancing with uh, my landlady. She's a delightful woman. Uh, yes, there she is. Anyway, uh, so obviously do try and stay safe. And uh, this show was recorded at... Hey, people, listen up. It's a fucking lockdown. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. And here's the show. What a world we're making. I can see why the kids are dropping out. We should have. It's an emergency, Dutton. We got tagged, period. Till I saw those photos from Vandenberg, I... They brought it on themselves. Come on, magic screen, come up with something. Análisis estadístico comparativo de la incidencia epidémica de variedades asintosomáticas de enfermedades infectocontagiosas en la Europa meridional durante la Alta Edad Media. Uf, se puede decirse con una palabra. Follow these instructions. If you do not have a place prepared for yourself, drive at least 50 miles from the target area. Don't try to telephone anyone. Your safety and perhaps your life depends on remaining calm and following these instructions. Do not attempt to cross town. Leave the city immediately by the shortest route. Remain calm and give everybody else the same chance you want for yourself to leave town. We can all get to safe areas if we act calmly. Stay in your place. If you have a place of refuge far enough away, go there and remain until we give you information that will permit your return. Listen to rumors, and above all, keep calm. Your life depends on it. This is Music for Films, the underground film podcast, and I'm Tim Concannon, and I cover anti-social distancing for Music for Films. I'm Shruti Swami, and I'm the senior crisis correspondent. And I'm Miles Handy, Senior Political Analyst. And I'm the Music for Films in-house film doctor. And I'm the Mac Daddy on the left. So the format we have for these programmes, box set, is we talk about two films because uh, perhaps people would like to watch some interesting films while they're self-isolating at home at the moment. And uh, we've picked two films with a fairly obvious link. The 1971 Robert Wise, The Andromeda Strain. And by way of comparison, contrast, the 1978 Mexican film adapted by Gabriel Garcia Marquez from Daniel Defoe's 1722 novel uh, The Year of the Plague and the director of that's Felipe Casals 
mean, I hope this this program is going to be fairly upbeat. We hope it's entertaining, informative. Uh, it's keeping people fairly chipper because I presume quite a lot of people are doing what we're doing, which is we're we're self isolating from the the COVID nineteen vi- virus in our isolation pod made from bamboo. Obviously, it's plastic free, uh, which we've dug into granite in, in a disused nuclear bunker here in Scotland yeah and you know that no one's noticed we've just snuck off yeah I mean you know it's, it's hardly out of the ordinary where we are what everyone in the world is having to do is basically what I've done for the last five years um, but yes we will try and be fairly upbeat but obviously this is a very depressing and concerning global situation and we don't want to make light of it for example I'm certainly not going to use Dinah Ross's um, Love Hangover as the music bed for this bit Damn Is that tactless? I mean, people are still suffering from love hangovers. The pandemic doesn't stop the awesome power of a love hangover. So, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the disease that she's referring to is a literal disease. It might just be um, you a know, malaise of the soul. Um, well, a, a kind of horny malaise. Let's be sure. honest. But I mean, what I like to think of is actually our listeners who are the disease, and because they're diseased. We should say that um, your expertise that you bring to this discussion about two pandemic breakout films is not only have you... You've got the PhD now. I do have a so PhD, yes. Do I have to refer to you as Dr. Narayan Swami throughout the podcast or um, can I just I, do it there and park I'd it? I'd prefer and... if you would call me Doctor. I am the film Doctor, not the film Doctor. Because I've just decided it sounds a bit more... Mysterious. You sound more like a sort of Dr. Marboos or something. Yes. Sort of Teutonic supervillain. Yes. Cool. But so you, but you've got the PhD. Yeah, I do have you've, the PhD. You've handed in the hardback bound yes. copy of it. Yes. And how, when can your fan base uh, read this document? It's embargoed, isn't it? It is embargoed for five years, but um, if the crisis continues, maybe I will just do a live stream of me reading my entire thesis yeah if, we, if everyone just runs out of reading material yeah. you could just read out your whole PhD yeah. thesis what's it about uh, do you really need to know I mean yeah, you've spent I do. Yeah. months uh, we want answers at this point in the crisis well it was about women's cinema going in Bombay in the 1930s and 40s and I uh, look at how women became a cinema going audience and so there were concerns at the time about people going to cinema potentially being a source of transmission of disease it was uh, some concerns were linked to cinema being a place where you know uh, these were considered unhygienic spaces so they were considered spaces of disease transmission but also transmitting a sort of moral disease yes but then also cinema in in the period before Indian independence 
and I'm going on on your research, also was something that spread public health information as well. Yes, that's right. So how did that work? Well, uh, I study a few propaganda films. Um, so again, sort of films covering both diseases in the corporeal sense. So I do talk about films that talk about alcohol uh, abuse and society, but also films that considered um, sort of, you could say, a, a moral epidemic that they thought was being transmitted through Western ideas and notions such sort of as divorce, behavior. yes. Yeah. And uh, I should also point out, uh, dear listener, that Shruti's relevant expertise to talk about pandemic films is not only that you're a qualified film doctor, but before all this malarkey with film studies, you were a biogeneticist for a bit, weren't you? I think expertise would be stretching it. Uh, You've certainly I, done more more things in labs with RNA think, than I have. I am a I am an educated reader. Let's call myself an educated speaker on the subject, because yes, I did do uh, my bachelor's in biotechnology, which uh, involved spending a lot of time in microbiology labs. Uh, I mainly work with E. coli. Uh, which is the most, by far the most common organism used in laboratories. But yes, I have spent, I have done my share of growing microorganisms on culture media, pipetting action. Um, pipetting I, action, Pipetting action, yeah. All the world loves a pipette. Uh, you know, creating a sterile workbench, uh, preventing contamination. And if, you know, under the right circumstances, with the right equipment, I'm pretty sure I could still do a mean uh, tea plate. Now you're talking. Uh, so when we're talking about what the, the RNA strand that is COVID-19 looks like, or when people are talking about you know keeping surfaces sterile and stuff, this is all stuff you've had to do in a, a lab environment. Yes. Very interesting. I suppose the other, I mean, this is sort of getting into the kind of whole area of just how genuinely grim and depressing everything is, and we can't really dodge the fact that it is a very, very worrying time for everyone, including us. I mean, you know, we're making this podcast from our flat in Scotland. You can hear a bit of traffic in the background. Normally we'd be doing this at midnight when it's quieter, but there's very little traffic outside. Uh, So we might as well do it now on a Saturday evening. Because we've been in the flat, I mean, I've been in the flat for about a week. You've been out once. It is depressing. It is very worrying for everybody. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, on a personal note, I'm very concerned about my parents and my grandpa and my family in India. I'm the only child, so I do feel guilty for not being with my parents when I should be there because, you know, both them are elderly and the situation is getting grim in India. I would say India is still about a week behind where we are. Uh, But of course the fundamental difference is that I would say that social distancing, at least where we are in Scotland, is much easier because we don't live in a very densely populated area where India is a completely different ballgame. 
So even though we're still in touch with your mum and dad and your family over WhatsApp and things like that, there is that kind of inevitable minute-to-minute concern about, you know, how are they doing? Have they got enough food? Yeah. Are they physically doing okay? And I think if there's anything about these two movies, The Andromeda Strain and The Year of the Plague, um, I think if there's any kind of common theme to them, which we can reflect on now, it's not so much the kind of trope you have in zombie films about what happens to the characters if all the kind of trappings of civilization are stripped away. Is you know who are who are these people when you you strip Simon Pegg's character in Shaun of the Dead or any of the characters in the George Romero Dawn of the Dead films down to their essence? Who are they? It's not really about that so much as how society responds to a crisis. What sort of threads of common humanity are able to survive in that and the tension in both films seems to be between people who have a very selfless sense of public service and people who are selfish and the kinds of sort of decadence and selfishness and idiocy that you see displayed when people are being tested as they are now all over the world Um, what I find most interesting again I don't want to imply that I am a scientist but uh, I find it interesting how both films are also about how science reacts to a crisis because the people in these films um, we don't really see much of what is happening within their personal lives um, and how they feel because um, as scientists I would argue that they don't have the luxury of focusing on how they're feeling because they have a job to do and speaking of people who have a job to do um, I just thought since we are talking about the fact there's a, a global virus pandemic as we're recording this uh, just to think about how public servants are responding um, and to connect it back to other shows we've done most of our music for film shows have been about the London Underground and about London so uh, this is a clip of the current Transport for London announcement which you hear if you go onto the tube. Oh! But you should only go onto the tube if you're an essential worker, if you're yes. working supermarkets or an ambulance driver or something. Obviously, if anyone's listening and they are in London, please don't use the tube. Please just stay in your flat. It's safer for you, it's safer for everyone. You should not be using public transport or travelling for anything other than essential journeys. We've done our customers and staff who are keeping public transport for London straight so that's the current message on Transport for London. It's basically London is shut down apart from for essential workers. But contrast that message with uh, this comment from a lady in, I think it was Dalston Market or one of the markets in North London, that was on Channel 4 News on Wednesday when she was asked how she's changing her behaviour in response to the virus. No, we're hardly changing at all because if you do that, then... You give in to it, sort of thing. Um, repeat after me. This is not a moral test of your fortitude. This is not. This is not cosplay for what you would have acted like during the Blitz. It's an organism that is designed to replicate as quickly and efficiently, and as widely as it can. You're a host. That, that's it. I mean, there seems to be a sort of metaphysical problem that people are struggling with in their minds in Britain. There's a comparable thing in America with support for Trump's administration, but let's just talk about Britain, where people have kind of won this victory over 
a perceived enemy in Europe and by having won this victory over one thing that people can only see in their heads it's now like they're doing the same thing with another antagonist that they can only perceive in their heads it's that it, it worked last time with Europe we saw off Brussels and the European Union now we'll see off the virus and the Prime Minister Boris Johnson who's a man kind of defined by his some might say intemperate desire for any of his intellectual or bodily impulses to be satisfied no matter how willing the prospective recipient for that desire uh, or impulse might be that now he's actually challenged with physical boundaries in this case biotic boundaries uh, he doesn't look like a happy camper really does he in, no. in press conferences he looks quite fraught quite sort of strained all the time the mask of sort of ho 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 fairly well stout yeoman all that kind of bullshit seems to have just kind of dropped and now you've just yes. got this angry scared public schoolboy who has actually experienced limits on what he can do yes and unfortunately this is not a press conference where you could stand there with a pint of beer yeah, to, the kind you know, of Farage signal your Britishness or whatever it is that they think they're doing. Cigarette thing, yeah. Um, this is about this. This is about as stupid as going to your doctor and your doctor telling you that you have type two diabetes and that you have to follow a specific diet and you have to make changes in your lifestyle and you coming out of your doctor's appointment and going out to Dunkin Donuts and eating 12 donuts because you're showing it to diabetes. Yeah, it was li literally last night people going out for a final pint in the pub when all the, the order had gone out to close all the pubs and theatres and cinemas. Um, you just yeah. sort of look at that slack jaw and just go, yeah. you, do you not understand how this works? Like you've now exponentially increased your chances of contracting the virus and in so doing, because you might be symptomless, you've also increased the chances of everyone you come into contact, not just your loved ones, your family and friends, but people you don't know may now all catch the virus because you had your victorious final pint. Really, what do you say apart from just calmly explaining to people, I don't think you understand how this virus works, I don't think you should go out, I think you should stay at home, and... I don't want you to die. I might not even like you because of your political views or your 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 temperament. I mean, let's cut to the chase. A lot of people who are well up for Brexit, I just don't like as people for the most part. They remind me of people that bullied me at school. But I don't want them to die. I mean, I don't want anyone to experience any harm at all. And it's very hard to know what to say to people who, who just seem almost at the sort of atomic level at the sort of neurological level, seem to display an inability to process facts. You're speechless. I, yeah, I mean, I don't know how to convey a facepalm. On the radio. On the radio. On a podcast. <laughs> we should also mention, before we get into the films, that um, you've, you've lived through one of the kind of more famous or celebrated natural disasters of modern times that you and, and Dad... We're stuck in the flat, the old flat in Dombivli, where we used to live in Bombay, South Bombay, during the Bombay floods in, was it 2003? Uh, 2003, yes, I was in my, I was in my first year of doing my biotechnology degree, oddly enough, and me and my classmates uh, started getting texts 
from our families uh, because the water levels has had started rising um, and they told us to just leave college for the day and come home and we uh, managed to get home somehow well we managed to get about halfway between my college which was in Kalyan and uh, my home in Dombivli which would only be a five minute train ride but of course they had rightly closed all the train services so we talked a uh, rickshaw into dropping us all the way to Dombivli but he had to stop halfway because they had to open one of the dams so we were witnessing the water literally rushing in from the dam uh, yeah so we were stuck in the middle of a, a highway um, and we had to all stand on the divider between the two sides of the road because the floodwaters were so high and we were all holding each other's hands because the water was up to our uh, chests. And then we flagged down a massive uh, goods truck so, and there was a very elderly gentleman who was also trying to get home but he was by himself very frail so we managed to flag down a truck we got ourselves and this elderly gentleman on the truck and we got to Dunbibli and walked home and then uh, the rain stopped briefly the flood waters started receding for a very brief time and we thought this was over um, but then it was the middle of the night and it was just me and my dad and my grandpa uh, and my grandma and uh, my mom was at work so we just assumed she had to stay back at work because there was no way she could get back safely and it was the middle of the night and um, I started smelling something funny in the end, it was completely pitch dark because, of, of course, there was no power. So I woke my dad up, and the both of us woke up, and we took our flashlights and we stepped out. And I pointed the flashlight downstairs, and then we saw that the reason was smelling funny because the massive uh, drain just behind our building had completely overflowed and our building was now surrounded by about I would say eight or nine feet of water and sewage water was just rushing into the houses on the ground floor. Gee whiz. Yep. And that's still, that's all full of human bioethylence. Yes, yes, yes. Basically yes. everything. For, and Don is the most densely populated suburb in the world isn't it? Uh, I don't think it, it um, I would have to check whether but it is definitely one of the more densely populated suburbs in Mumbai. Um, I'm just thinking that since Mumbai is the most oh, yeah. popular city on earth, yeah, yeah, it's we're talking about a phenomenal quantity yes. of human yes. waste. Yes, yes, and um, also quite dangerous because you know it's full of methane gas and who knows what else. I remember uh, pointing my flashlight at um, the sort of middle courtyardy bit in my building. And uh, there's lots of uh, scooters and stuff people would have parked there. And, of course, you couldn't see any of the scooters because they were completely submerged. But the um, uh, uh, rear view mirrors were still sticking up in the air. 
and you could just make out that there were mirrors because all the cockroaches that were f uh, fleeing from the floodwaters had completely covered this mirror. It was just surreal and we had to uh, raise an alarm, wake up everyone who was in the first floor because we had to make sure they were all not drowning and just basically wake everyone in the building. So based on that experience of, of one of the more kind of celebrated serious natural disasters of modern times, how do you, uh, and since you're living in, in Scotland, in Britain at the moment, as a, someone who's now got a PhD from studying here, how do you think we're responding compared with how people in Bombay responded in 2003 to the floods? What, what's the kind of attitudinal response? How does that compare? How, how are people handling themselves, I guess, is what I'm asking. I'm, I think we're seeing about two different kinds of responses. I think it's because we live very close to a university town and the University of St Andrews uh, suspended face-to-face -face teaching about a week ago. Yeah. Uh, it closed its libraries, its gyms. In terms of a response, the university has actually been really good and responsive and because they took all of these actions I think the people living in St Andrews realise that this is not a drill. And the Scottish government's response has yeah, been very has impressive been, as yeah, well. Yeah, very impressive but looking at the gen responses generally on Twitter and um, again listening to stuff like you know the beaches in Brighton full being today, full yeah, of people yeah. today. And where I'm from. And also just some of the broader responses that sort of we're listening about in the US about people going to Florida for their spring break. And well, it's people coming up here to Scotland, to the Highlands, to, because they know all the hotels have now, all the tourists have, yes. have gone. So people coming up here basically to get away from it all. And yes, go to which we say, just no, please, please, just stay please away. Stay at home. <laughs> just stay at home. For everyone's sake, for your sake, for our sake, for people living in those very isolated communities all it would take is one person this is going to go on for a couple of months stay at home all the lovely places that you want to go to to get away from it all will all still be there and the people will be healthy and safe if you stay at home maintain social distancing avoid people if you have to be around people try and stay two meters from them it's really basic stuff it's so astonishing that adult humans just can't process this information. And then if you look at our national government, Boris Johnson's government, the fact that they could give out completely the wrong information and then the right information when it was too late. I mean, this amazing £300 billion <laughs> stimulus package that um, our new Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, has introduced. It's brilliant. Like, it's the right response. But it's too late. And I think that sort of, that's what I feel as a colonial commoner. Sorry, I'm showing my my fandom of uh, Kermit and Mayo's, Mayo's show. Superior film podcast. Yes. There are, let's be honest, there are better film podcasts. Than yes. This. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that there are better <laughs> film casts? There's David and Fiona's film podcast, The Shadowcast. When they do an alternative DVD commentary... By this point in the podcast, they're finished. <laughs> We've been yammering on for 
quite a while. They'd have they'd done their podcast by now. I think the listeners that we have at this point, I, I, they you know, know I drill. mean, I'm sure they they tune in for well, David's listening. The information and the film commentary. The, the five sure or six fans we've got, one of them's David. <laughs> You know. David must be protected at all costs Cost. for no other reason than that he's one of the few people who listens to yeah, us. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, stay indoors, David. Um, but I think uh, you asked me what I think is the sort of attitudinal difference. I think when you're from a developing country, particularly a very densely populated uh country like India and a densely populated city like Mumbai. The maximum city. The maximum the city. The biggest, most densely populated city in the world. I mean, when the um, the terror attacks in Bombay happened, uh, you know, people were at work two days after it happened. Uh, and now Mumbai has been partially shut down. This is surreal. I have never seen the city shut down apart from the floods but yeah I think when you're from a developing country particularly a tropical country you are used to even if you you haven't been directly exposed to diseases like cholera and typhoid and malaria and dengue fever you probably know people or you've probably had family exposed to uh, highly contagious diseases like that so I think as someone from a tropical country when I hear that there is an outbreak there is an outbreak when I hear social distancing I socially distance myself my first instinct isn't to sort of test the boundaries of social distancing by going out all out on the one night, on the last night that I could go to the pub having a last hurrah so I feel like I mean it's a good thing that people in this culture are not used to having a malaria outbreak every month yeah sort of biotic showbiz yeah, and the fact I, that I, our public health system and our aquifers and possible water systems all work pretty well and have done for about 150 years yeah and don't get overwhelmed because there aren't millions of people using it somewhere like five so I feel like that's generally a good thing but I think one of the downsides is that maybe it takes a bit of time for that sense of urgency and seriousness to percolate through all sections of society it's very noticeable at the moment well it has been noticeable for some time that there's no anti-vaccine movement in Africa. No. There's, I mean, I'm sure there might be some people in sure. Asia who who think that the MMR vaccine causes oh, sure. autism, but I it, mean, it's you not know, a I'm thing. sure there are middle-class mums in India who also, you know, think that essential oils can cure everything from uh, eczema to cancer. Yeah. Yeah, but they yeah. But even those people know when to go to a hospital. Yeah, they get their kids vaccinated. Even those yeah. kids will have make sure that their kids' vaccinations are up to schedule. So that's been noticeable for a while. But the thing right now, which is really obvious, is that Nigeria, India, Kenya, the large populous countries in what we think of still as the developing world, have 
immediately brought in controls at airports. They're very aggressive in encouraging social distancing. Um, we've got a good friend in River State in Nigeria. Hello, Ernesto, if you're listening. And um, he's at college, and all the colleges have been shut straight away. They've only got about 22 confirmed cases in Nigeria, but the whole of Africa's most populous country has just basically gone on yeah. lockdown. Because they've been through this before. They went through the EBD crisis a couple of years ago, and they know the drill. I think it's that lack of knowledge of how bad things can get if you fanny about that I think you're right, that actually it's a good thing in a way that people aren't used to this. But the unfortunate aspect of not being used to this is you get it really badly wrong. And the the cost of getting it really badly wrong is... High and devastating. And in I mean, we will talk about this when we talk about the film, but in an epidemic, time is of the essence. And that's what we've lost in Britain. Well, to kind of just tie all these things together, and there's going to be some wonderful, uh, uncomfortable tonal shifts throughout this programme. Um, given that we've been talking about effluent and disease and lots of people dying. And also I think the, th- the thing that kind of is interesting about comparing and contrasting an American movie from 71, Robert Weiss's Andromeda Strain, and Felipe Casal's 1978, The Year of the Plague, is what they seem to have in common or what they're about is how do societies respond to these kind of threats and the good it brings out in people but also well, the but it's also the about how, aspects yeah the stupidity. But also about how science has to respond and sometimes we don't get to see in real time how science responds to it because science has to go in a bit of a vacuum and speaking of things which are perhaps a little bit more realistic and true to how people actually respond and linking it to our previous uh, Mexican Batwoman show that we did a couple of months ago uh, when we talked about the Teloloco massacre in Mexican politics in 1968 would you like to hear the Spanish version of uh, Je t'aime? Yes! <laughs> yes! So that was Isela Vega doing the Spanish language, Mexican version of Je Yote Amo, Yo Tampoco. 
which was recorded in 1969. Now the link, this may interest you. Conversely, it may not interest you. But the link from that distinctive track uh, back to Mexico 1968, which we talked about last time, is Isela Vega directed a film in the 80s, I think in 89, called Lovers of the Lord of Night, also starring Irma Serrano, another Mexican film actor and chanteuse of the late 60s, who, she has subsequently confirmed, was having an affair with President Gustavo Diaz in 1968 and has denied that she ordered Diaz to carry out the massacre of the students. Wow. So there you go. Great. <laughs> yes, I can't wait to hear that song again then. But it's, it's interesting that uh, Mexican cinema, which we're going to go on to talk about when we talk about the uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez scripted Mexican plague film. Mexican cinema is much more sort of integrated into the, is it fair to say, you know, salacious sensationalist nature of Mexican politics. If you think about Serge Gainsbourg, apart from the controversy about Jaten, the only real political controversy he got involved in was he did a reggae version of um, La Marseille with Sly and Robbie in Jamaica. It's really good. Well, you can hear it on the music band because it's so cool. And he leaves out the, the terrible um, verse about... Well, I can't remember what it is in French, but the bit about, you know, the the fields will run with the blood of our enemies. Uh, yes. He leaves that bit out and just yes. say, just says something like, you know, etc. Yeah, I can see how that wouldn't go with the chill reggae yeah, it's vibes. Not, yeah. Yeah, it's not really iry, is it? No. That kind of thing. But that was met with a huge controversy when he got back to Paris. Uh, army veterans boycotted him and there was a bit of kind of shoving in the street but it's not as if Serge Gainsbourg wasn't a patriotic free Frenchman I mean there's the story that when the Germans occupied Paris Gainsbourg liked people to know that he presented himself to the Germans uh, and asked for his yellow star as a Jewish French citizen uh, because he was going to make himself sheriff of this town but the Mexican version you know you kind of immediately drawn into the seedy world of political corruption and massacres and crisis and it's interesting how film cultures have different layers where they kind of overlap with politics I mean there's no Brexit films really apart from that that sort of did it get theatrical at least the BBC film that's got Cumberbatch as Dominic Cummings I mean I feel very uncomfortable um commenting on anything that's not my expertise it's not like I am Nigel Farage no. on BBC talking about COVID-19 no I have no such illusions of grandeur perhaps if you had a velvet collar of your jacket and you smoked a smoked a cigarette or perhaps a cheeky French chitane cigarette with your pint pint in a pub that would add to your acumen. I'm looking for an answer here, basically. You're, you're remaining button-lipped. Far be it from uh, you. When you have fine. nothing good to say. Moving on. 
Well, this is Music for Films, where we discuss the music and the films. And music for films. That has affected people's lives. And in the case of the Andromeda Strain, we have a wonderful opportunity to talk about a very interesting, quite avant-garde score, which was composed by a fascinating gentleman. Whom I'd never heard of before. Gil Malay. Uh, so we'll talk about Gil Malay, but... First, let's listen to a medley of Gil Malay's work. And I've tried to put together... This is quite a long sequence, about seven minutes. And I've tried to put together something which encompasses the whole of his career. So he, as we'll go on to talk about in a minute, an amazing guy. So he was a blue note jazz musician. He was a composer for film and television. And also an innovative electronic music artist. Let's dip into a musical soundscape of the work of Gil Malay.
flipping egg. Very diverse. Yeah, so I've tried to sort of convey the fact that he was very innovative as a composer and musician in film and television, but also as an experimental musician. But that was grounded in his origins in, in Greenwich Village as a, a, a jazz musician and jazz composer. Shall I run through the track listings? Yes, please. Anything for you. <laughs> So first we had Desert Trip from 1971, so that was from the Andromeda Strain soundtrack, uh, which, as you could hear, was recorded on the Percussatron, which was his, uh, arguably the first drum machine that he developed. Uh, Then you heard from the beginnings of his career, we went back in time to 1953, to Greenwich Village, New York. So that was Four Moons from the album New Faces, New Sounds. Nice. That was Blue Note album 5020, uh, if you're interested. Blue Note 5020? Yeah. That sounds like a lovely nail polish shade. It would be delightful, wouldn't it? Yeah. It should be a kind of a range of eyeshadow and nail polish, bronzer. Yeah, I'm thinking of it as a sort of a dark blue. Yeah, I'm sure it would. Jazz nail polish for jazz hands. Moving on. And then we heard uh, The Desert from The Six Million Dollar Man. Uh, he did a lot of incidental music or, or music for television that would just be on during you know, the action. Uh, that, as you can guess, was Steve Austin landing in the desert on a parachute. And he also did a lot of other TV work, and mainly Columbo. He did a lot of the music on Columbo, as well as themes for a, a, a lot of his shows. I mean, he, his, his TV... CV is so long it would it would take an entire show just to go through all of it then you heard that very kind of harrowing electronic sequence that was the theme music for Rod Serling's Night Gallery from 1969 which was the first electronic music for a TV uh, theme on American television in fact let's just do a little experiment I'm quite interested you've heard the music for Rod Serling's Night Gallery let's now actually look at the title sequence itself because you've never seen this, have no, you? No, I haven't. What the heck is that? It's quite harrowing. It looks like a mix of um, a su- supernatural show mixed with some kind of investigative thriller. Yeah, I think that's that's quite an apt way of Describing it, it's kind of a combination of a sort of masterpiece theatre type of thing. Um, they're individual TV plays of the week, but often with a kind of very supernatural but quite sort of thrillery vibe to them as well. It's great. Um, certainly didn't have as much input into the night galleries he did with Twilight Zone. Have you ever seen Rosalind's Twilight Zone? No, I haven't. Wow. For real? I mean, if only we were indoors. For months. For a long time. Well, I, I guess people have, and most people are familiar with the the Joe Dante plus others movie, which remade a lot of the original black and white TV shows as as vignettes in a movie. So people know, you know, they're familiar with the William Shatner guy in a plane, and he sees this gremlin on the on the wing that's pulling bits off the plane. Most people recognise that. The one we really should watch actually after we make the show is um, Burgess Meredith 
is a guy who is the last man on earth. So he's wandering around, but he's a bibliophile, so he finds a, a library of all the books in the world. So he's, you know, he's the last man alive, but he's, he's quite happy. Except, dot, 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 I won't spoil it. Uh, I, I was a little distracted by his very impressive eyebrows, I have to say. Oh, you yes, I mean, Rod Serling was... Uh, you know, it was the eyebrows that drew you in. Nobody really did the raised eyebrow on American television at the time, apart from Nimoy. And the the competition between those two, it got it got quite grisly at one point. It took contracts out on each other. I mean, as but, someone who has no eyebrows, yeah, you know, very impressive. I mean, the they took contracts out on each other's eyebrows. I mean, it was really, but you could in those days. I mean, it was a very competitive market for contract killing. You could just have. The mafia come and just shave someone's eyebrow at night while they were. Oh, it's not a bad way to put someone out of work for a bit. I'm really guessing isn't. it takes time for eyebrows to go back. It does. I shaved my eyebrows off once in my David Bowie oh. phase as a teenager. <laughs> yeah, it took about it took about two months to grow back, and I did it while I was staying with my grandmother, who was quite a proper woman, and she was very unimpressed with me for doing it. Oh dear. And uh, I don't really think God that it was my manifest worth phase. And um, I came down the stairs once, having forgotten to draw them back on, and she said, oh, you look ridiculous. So, yeah, that was the night gallery music. Then, which I, th- I think the thing that's great about it is it just conveys how harrowing the content is. It's very harrowing music for a very harrowing programme. Then, by contrast, from his 1989 album... Mindscapes, uh, the kind of Vangelis inspired, Vangelis kind of uh, imitative of Vangelis in some ways, perhaps, certainly the Blade Runner music, Neon Canyons. Uh, and then to round it off, we had the theme music from Colchat the Night Stalker, the short lived but much loved cult TV show, which you also haven't seen. No. Well, you should watch them as well, aren't Yeah, but the title. Uh, credits and the title song is fantastic. I well, mean, it you know, and clearly very successful. I really want to watch the show now. Yeah, it's one of those themes that really draws you in. Well, it's it's the whistle. All the world loves the whistle. I love a theme with a whistle in, largely because of the saint, and particularly Vincent Price playing the saint. And here's a bit of it. Are you going to give me the picture, or, or will I have to shoot you? I think you'd better shoot me, Miss Blair. Oh, Mr. oh Vincent Price is the saint. And the whistle on that's done with a theremin. I believe. Oh, wow. So that kind of connects the whistle coda for the Saint franchise, the Saint brand, kind of back to Gil Malay because Malay was also innovating with electronic instruments in the 60s and 70s. It's interesting that, um, again, that soundscape is quite diverse, but you can still hear his sort of signature sound. Yes. In all of them, 
which I guess must be a very challenging thing for a TV or film composer because uh, I'm guessing part of the job is to not you don't want to sound like yourself you want to sound like what's right for the show yes well that's interesting you should say that because he actually walked off culture at the Night Stalker he did the music for four episodes and then he felt it kind of become too whimsical uh, and he left the show wow um, and because I mean he was a you know serious blue note jazz artist in his origins so uh, he had great musical integrity is a sense you get about his work and yet you look at um, and I think that comes across from that Cold Chat the Night Stalker theme that it it starts off quite whimsical and it's got this kind of almost kind of lustrous Henry Mancini kind of full orchestral you know you you feel like you're getting a, a quality product you know you're going to sit down and you're going to be entertained for, for a good hour uh, but then it suddenly takes a left swerve and you're in this kind of quite harrowing kind of is it spinal tap? I mean, it sounds a bit like Noi it's got almost a kind of Krautrock type of quality to it but again I think it conveys this sort of harrowing nature of of the content because Kolchak's pretty it's quite gritty stuff but it had a big impact on the X-Files Did his uh, independent albums receive any mainstream success? Not success I think he's somebody who there's increasing interest in so uh, I think people are kind of joining the dots for a variety of reasons but so this is what I find intriguing about him is that he's like Dino Derbyshire or like um, Pierre Boulet actually did make some quite useful serious contributions to electronic music and that's contrasted with the kind of movies and TV that he was uh, that he was composing for did he do any work on Bond films? That's a really interesting point because, in fact, you can imagine just from the Six Million Dollar Man stuff, he'd have done an, a, a very, an excellent job doing that. But actually, no, um, interestingly. And his film CV uh, kind of speaks for itself. So among his accolades, uh, and I'm not being 100% sarcastic when I say that because some of these are great movies... Um, well he did do the music for Frankenstein The True Story which was a kind of um, masterpiece theatre take on Frankenstein that was at the time the the version of Frankenstein that was most influenced by Mary Shelley's original novel um, but he also did uh, Blood Beach a cult horror film set on I think it's Venice Beach I mean it's got a, it's got a following uh Killdozer was one of his. He did a Sidney Poitier film. He oh, did a Virgil wow. Tibbs movie. He did The Organisation, which is a kind of uh, lesser Virgil Tibbs movie. He also did the music for The Sentinel. And The Sentinel's a movie that, um, while we've kind of been on and off air with the podcast, uh, we helped out with a film festival in East London a couple of years ago. And turns out that The Sentinel, directed by Michael Winner, with a score by Gil Millet, uh, is a uh, big favourite of Edgar Wright. So Edgar oh, Wright wow. picked that, and okay. that, was, that was on in the festival. The Sentinels is becoming reappraised as a Michael Winner film. So um, 
I mean, just the cast has got Ava Gardner, Jeff Goldblum, Burgess Meredith, Christopher Walken's in it. Wow. And it's basically just a kind of quite cheesy rip-off of The Exorcist and The Omen. But... I'm sold. I mean, stylistically yeah. quite interesting, um, but with a score by, by Gil Malay, which is a kind of one of the the aspects of it where you start to go, hmm, okay, I, c- I can see why some, you know, a connoisseur like Edgar Wright might, might uh, be responding to this movie on some level. But it, it's interesting that he nev- that Gilmore never did a Bond or a spy movie. And you can imagine, particularly with his kind of jazzy Afro-Cuban background, he, you know, he would have done a great job, I think. The nearest I can imagine to it is, um, you know the Marvin Hamlish music for The Spy Who Loved Me? Yes. Bond 77. Clues in the name. Disco Bond, which you can hear on the, the sound bed now, which is in the ski chase, and it's got that whole kind of, is it Tijuana Brass, is it a kind of Afro-Cuban thing? It's certainly funky. Funky Bond. It's interesting that there's, there is that kind of element in the Bond composers, if you think about uh, just what happened with the Bond theme, is, of course, it's... And it also links back to the aspect of experimental music in the 20th century after the war, tending to sound kind of oriental, at least as, as far as Western yes. people think of it. It's kind of slightly out of tune, because the Bond coda... It's Monty Norman's attempt at a, at a raga because he did this musical that never went anywhere based on a V.S. Naipaul novel, Bad Sign, Good Sign. Do you want to hear the, the attempt at a raga that inspired Bond? Yeah, go for it. Surprisingly, that went nowhere. But uh, that was not very good. But it was reused. So Norman presented Cubby Broccoli and the Bond producers with um, some of, most of a Doctor No score, and they weren't having it. Now John Barry was coming out of his sort of pop phase, where he'd been John Barry of the John Barry Seven, and he'd had this big hit with the soundtrack album for. Beat Girl. You and all your phony beatnik friends. Oliver Reed's got that blink and you missing cameo when he just gets that one line. But yeah, so John Barry's got that, still got that whole kind of uh, Peter Gunn twang sound but then you combine that with Monty Norman's attempt at Indian music and you get the Bond theme so I can imagine with Gil Malay's very experimental origins if he then brought that to what we think of as more kind of like conventional a conventional movie soundtrack it would have been great certainly would make the Bond franchise a bit more interesting to me I think so well so there you are the the breadth and the depth of Gil Malay's music. That was fantastic. Oh. And I hope he does get reappraised and 
more widely known? Well, if only we had an in-house film doctor, an academic, who perhaps could draw some of these elements together in a, in a more formal setting. It's a thought. It is a thought. Would you like some Gil Malay facts? Yes, I would. Gil Malay was born in 1931. He was abandoned. When Where he was, was he born? In New York. Yeah, so he was abandoned when he was two. Very sad. Brought up by family friends of his parents. But uh, he was a prodigy, not only a musical prodigy, but also a prodigy in visual arts. So when he was 16, he had his paintings exhibited in Manhattan, in New York. Uh, he was playing sax in cafes in Greenwich Village at 16. He was the first white musician to be signed to Blue Note Jazz. When he was 19, so the, the Gil Malay Quintet was recording albums for Blue Note when he was still a teenager. He recorded 10 albums in total. Um, not only recorded albums, but he also designed the covers of his albums, designed album covers for other Blue Note artists, including Thelonious Monk and Mars Davis. Then he moved to Los Angeles. Then he had this amazing film and TV career where he has over you know, 100 works to his name. What's really great is how people are reappraising him and you're finding his music for the Six Million Dollar Man for Columbo, isolated film scores are cropping up on YouTube and other places and you can just listen to them yeah. on, on their own and it's um, you know similar process that Delia Darbush has been through. It's uh, it's great. I hope the estate actually, I hope Gil Malay's estate actually gets some money out of it at some point but just in terms of just in terms of people connecting all the dots for him as a musician um, it's terrific. I don't want to get into too much of a digression about this, but this is kind of what I always wanted to do with music for films, and also why I'm glad that it's a podcast at the moment rather than being broadcast on the radio, because though it was fun being on the radio, I think we were always slightly constrained by um, the fact that we had to have a sort of limit to how long we could be on, because we only had so much airtime, and what I really like about film music and television music and what made me want to make these shows in the first place if people look back at this period of, of film schools and television schools in Hollywood, in Bombay, in London in the second half of the 20th century it's just this amazing melting pot of all kinds of ideas from really quite highbrow abstract music I mean, if you think about just the musicological background of, of Delia Derbyshire, of mm. Ron Groening, of um, Brian Hodgson from the BBC Radiophonic Workshop um, if you think about the jazz background the formal classical background of so many people doing music in Hollywood and particularly with television music not only things like the Six Million Dollar Man but also wow I mean the music on Star Trek I mean Star Trek The Next Generation which was the last US television show to have a full orchestral score just the isolated music on its own sounds like Charles Ives or Aaron Copeland or, or stuff like that sometimes but it was on American television on primetime TV every single week people were get, getting stuff which actually you know you could go and pick up a Thelonious Monk album or you could pick up a Mingus album 
and you could be hearing stuff that wasn't all that different from from what was on television and the same thing in Bombay if you think about the traditional classical training of people like Muhammad Rafi and actually just how good Artie Berman's classical stuff is when he did choose to do kind of classical Carnatic music in his films he he knew his stuff but he absolutely had an ear for Beatles influence or the kind of Afro-Cuban um, stuff particularly that kind of wonderful uh, El Mariachi kind of Mexican trumpet sound that that Berman has in a lot of his music so what I mean from the point of view of Indian popular films what's going on there the music in Indian cinema seems to be people trying to kind of get away and go into some kind of much more kind of lush also I think luxury world don't India I mean maybe it's just me but I have to say shamefully especially um, looking at a lot of stuff from 70s or 80s I don't think I've really ever paid attention to the background. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it, a lot of it sounds on... quite samey. Because so much, because the difference between watching Hindi films is, of course, there's songs within the film's narrative. So there is a lot of emphasis on music, but all of the emphasis is on the songs, not the background score. But actually, some of the what we think of as the foley work, yeah. So the kind of the the sound effects and the sound that's that's diegetic. It's meant to be in yes. the action that we're seeing, but it's recorded afterwards by, yes. by foley artists. Yes. There's so many examples of great foley work in Indian cinema, particularly um, Gabar's belt in yeah. Cholet. Yeah. That kind of yeah, dragging the belt sound. and the boots. Yeah, yeah, it's great. But also a lot of quite I don't want to say bad, quite kitschy. <laughs> uh, stuff as well as like the stereotypical shoot. Uh, Hindi films definitely went through a period in the seventies where uh, they just. Uh, the punch sounds during a fist fight or something uh, they just stopped even doing punch sounds they just literally had someone going dishum, dishum. it was like watching a comic book so for, for TV shows and also for kind of perhaps lower budget stuff in America I think it's a similar thing that actually there's this wealth of really very interesting often quite left field music I mean, the, I'm guessing it's easier. It's not easy, but it's an easier way to um, add to the tone or the atmosphere of a film than. I suppose it would be cheaper to do that through the background, or easier, more technically easier to do with the background score than do it with special effects or. There's that great bit in Forgetting Sarah Marshall where the guy who's trying to forget Sarah Marshall is doing this music for some gimmicky some police procedural that he's doing the music for. I don't have to say that though, it's not music. There's no melody, it's just tones. Just dark, ominous tones. Whereas the kind of music that we're talking about, although it's quite experimental, although it's quite cerebral in some ways, very much like the content, I mean, Star Trek, 
Kolchak the Night Stalker, Rod Serling's Night Gallery. These are quite actually in their source material, often quite highbrow. They were drawing on proper science fiction or proper horror fiction like H.P. Lovecraft or um, Edgar Allan Poe. And they kind of almost had some literary pretensions, even though fundamentally it was there to entertain the American public week after week. Uh, they weren't mollycoddling people. And there was something about the music which kind of said to you, OK, you better sit and pay attention and put the newspaper down because you might learn something. There's something just sort of gently tutorial without being didactic, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah, it's yeah. It's kind of drawing you into... Yes, it's, 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 it's instructing you to pay attention without cobbling you on the head. So in part two, we're going to have the opportunity to hear Gil Malay's soundtrack when we do our sort of Cliff Notes DVD commentary for Robert Wise's The Andromeda Strain and not only will we be seeing how the graphics and Douglas Trumbull's animation kind of added to 2001 Space Odyssey and Trumbull's Silent Running and other movies of that period in, in creating our sense of what the future would look like but also Malay's innovative sound design and music for The Andromeda Strain contributed to our sense of what the future would sound like. Is machine music quite like what people thought it was going to be in the 70s? Everything's looped now, isn't it? Yeah, and everything's looped. Much more chirpy, it's all like yeah, chirpy Yeah, chirpy and uh, sort of the auditory equivalent of uh, millennial pastels. It's very interesting that all the early analogue synthesizers and early commercially available electronic musical instruments were notorious for not staying in tune. So all the composers, irrespective of where they were in the world, they all seemed to reach the same conclusion, which was, we'll just let them be out of tune. So everything's got this kind of, what we think of in the West as kind of oriental tuning, but it's slightly off. So, but it's interesting, it's blue. It's actually the notes yes. in between. Yes. It's all the half tones. Very interesting. And now we're living in the future, and we've got devices which, which you know, there's music coming out of our phones and out of devices, even our television. Um, I'll do it now. There you go, that's our TV. But everything's got a little kind of code, everything's got a little kind of distinctive signature tune. But they're all quite, they're quite sort of cheeky and upbeat, you know. On comes the television, oh, someone sent you a WhatsApp message. It's not as kind of maudent and depressing, certainly, as a world of uh, killing monkeys. It is it is a very atmospheric film, and it is a thriller in many ways. But uh, there are also sequences where it just also conveys the uh, reality of being in a lab and doing experiments, which is that it takes a lot of time. There's a lot of repetitive work. It's very methodical, isn't it? Very methodical, and oftentimes it's quite boring. Science can be quite boring, but that is the nature of experimentation and duplication and gathering data. So I really like that about the experiment. What's really interesting about this movie is its matter-of-factness. There are no movie stars, no love interest, no action until almost the very end. There's no music for the first hour of the film. The dialogue is often mundane and trivial, like the dialogue in that science fiction masterpiece, 2001. 
which is just as it should be, since the events in question, encounters with alien life, the possible annihilation of the human species, are so momentous. Ratcheted up just a notch, these could be Kubrick scientists with their animal experiments, their top-secret government assignments, and their obsessive cleanliness. We face quite a problem. How to disinfect the human body, one of the dirtiest things in the known universe. That is, about killing a human being at the same time. It gets tougher as we go, I'm afraid. Hard on the taxpayers, isn't it, the way we burn up uniforms? They're paper. Well, that was a clip from Robert Wise's The Andromeda Strain, and before that you heard the words of the great and the good Alex Cox when he was introducing The Andromeda Strain on BBC Two's movie drone strand in the 90s oh, of course. and he's kind of agreeing with what you're saying which is with the Andromeda strain it's all about the science and science is mundane and meticulous but in that movie as in real life at the moment it's the detail it's the meticulous testing experimentation checking data paying attention to peer-reviewed evidence which is going to save lives you mean expertise I do mean expertise so just to be clear, we like experts again. I like you, and you're a film expert. And if you extend that principle around the globe, you know, we're all in this together, watching old films, trying not to catch a virus. Yes, I mean, listen to experts, even if you went to Eton. Also, thanks very much for spending the time to talk about these ideas and watch these films with me, Shruti. I I mean this. I have to thank you. Yeah, yeah, you do. We're I make for, your dinner. And also, we're, we're going to be here for months. Yeah. Our podcast is More Music for Films, and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice. Mm-hmm.